2 Corinthians chapter number 10. If you'd go to your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I think I asked this in chapel, all you faculty, staff. How many of you remember John Pound? Can I see you as a student? You remember him as a student? How many would be honest there was at least one point in his academic career he didn't have a lot of hope? Can I see your hands? No, I'm just teasing. Okay. So I just want to encourage you, uh, all you young people, there is hope. Okay. But um, yeah, it's a delight to have John aboard. He will be he's in training. He and his wife will, Lord willing, next fall be leading their own team, a team called War Blitz. They'll have two young men with them be going largely to churches without Christian schools, but conducting an evangelistic three-night crusade to win uh, teenagers to the Lord Jesus with Minutemen Ministries is, our, uh, uh, is the ministry that we're um, with. And you can uh, find more information about that at minutemenministries.org. And we're excited about what the Lord's doing in John and Danielle's life. And certainly great to, grateful to have them aboard and to be here tonight. OCA students had a great day today. We certainly enjoyed some of the competitions. Many of you were involved in that. And for old mom and dad, we started the War of Special Forces today, this afternoon. And the Super Seals and the uh, Mighty Marines and the Incredible Rangers had a three-way uh, face-off in the middle school and the high school. And at this point, the Super Seals have a slight lead over the Mighty Marines and the Rangers... Well, they'll catch up tomorrow. Okay, but anyway, that's where we are right now, and we're having a great time, and uh, we'll be having chapel tomorrow morning. You certainly hope you'll pray for us at 945, every day having opening God's Word with your young people, trying to hit issues that young people face, to be an encouragement and help, and uh, we all know this, that the Bible says that the truth sets us free. So you pray that God will do that in many hearts, and young people, I hope you'll come with an open heart and allow God to do our truth Uh, setting free a work in your own heart. But this evening, I've certainly got a message that um, I'm burdened about in 2 Corinthians chapter number 10. Just a moment, we're going to start reading in verse number 3. But I want to introduce the subject matter. And for those that were here Sunday morning, uh, we're going to uh, kind of take off from that. I'll have to give a little bit of ground again that we gave on Sunday morning, just kind of help us know where we are. God put me on a journey back in May that I really did not anticipate. It kind of came out of nowhere. I was in the province of Nova Scotia in the the country of Canada and was with a dear friend of mine who's a pastor. Most churches up there are smaller. And I don't know, it was early part of the week. He said, Brother Van Gelderen, he said, something happened I got to tell you about. He said, it really just threw me. He said, I was preaching one night out of 1 Timothy, I think it was. And he said, in the book, it talked about being sober. He said, I stopped maybe five minutes. It was not long. And I addressed the issue of pornography. He said, when I finished the message, he said, I did not anticipate this, but he said, I was absolutely blown away. This is a small church. He said, I had five teenagers and five men, some married, some unmarried, and they came to me and told me that they were in pretty thick into that issue. And he said, Brother Van Gelder, he said, I'm going to be honest with you. He said, it totally blew me away. He said, as a result, I began to find some resources because I really didn't know how to help them. I was looking for somebody who'd done more study than I, and he said, I came across a video series. He said, I want you to see it. He said, do we have some time? It's going to take some time. And so we cleared several days, and we kind of binged it to watch this video series. It was 10 sessions, about 30 to 40 minutes each, and, and we watched every one of them. And uh, I don't know, it was probably 6th, 7th, 8th, somewhere in their session, that I, uh, I was absolutely blown away. And it opened my heart to a journey, a journey now I've been on since the month of May. And I uh, began to realize that in our culture, there are a lot of people who are hooked on some what I'm going to call addictive behavior. Now, addictive behavior is destructive behavior. Now, many times when we think of addictive behavior, we think of chemical addictions like drug abuse or alcohol, and certainly that is included. 
But even the issue of pornography is chemical addictions, but you're addicted to your own chemicals. Overdoses of dopamine into the mind. I was absolutely amazed as I began to do some study on this and began to find out that um, there's just several issues here. But I also began to realize that many Christians, and I realize what addictive behavior is, it's coping mechanisms. And I began to realize there are a lot of coping mechanisms that even Christians, in fact, in this room, I would assume that many of you have coping mechanisms that you don't even recognize are coping mechanisms. In a moment, we're going to see that the Bible calls them strongholds. And I began to recognize, I've always kind of wondered, why is it the American church, and I'm speaking, Laura, in a very general fashion, why is it American Christianity seems to hit a ceiling and we just can't break into revival? We can't break into blessing. Why is it? The more and more I realized it, I think I began to realize, I think many of the people sitting in the pew are defeated with strongholds. So what I'd like us to do is walk through this passage real quickly and identify, we're going to identify the strongholds and Then we'll begin to deal with what the passage says, how to deal with them. But I think many times we do not identify the strongholds. After I saw that video series, I got a book by the same author. And uh, I read the book, and in the book he talked about four stages when it comes to addictive behavior. And tonight I'm going to use these. In a moment we'll see that they're right here in the Word of God. They're amazing, absolutely amazing. I'm going to put the stage number three, I'm going to put that right here, is what we call addictive behavior. That's the coping mechanism. In a moment, we'll identify what coping mechanisms are. And just so you understand, let me give you an example of a coping mechanism. People who shop with money they don't have. See, that's a coping mechanism. Did you know, ladies, you probably know this, that when you get a new dress, you get a hit of of dopamine. Did you know that? It feels good. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong if you got the money for it, but if you're trying to cope with life and you buy a new dress with money you don't have, that's a coping mechanism to get the hit of dopamine. That's why the young husband who comes, they've been married five months and they can't even make house payments, come home with a new Harley. That really causes problems in the marriage. Why? Because he's looking for his coping mechanism. He, doesn't, he spends money he doesn't have. Does that happen in America? Yeah. So when I talk about coping mechanisms, I understand I'm not just talking about the drug addict out there. I'm probably talking about a lot of us in this room. So you have addictive behavior, which is always destructive. And it always is, is, is trying to cope the wrong way. So you have the addictive behavior. I'm going to put that as step number three right here. Over here, preceding the addictive behavior is always an addictive mindset. It is always preceded by thinking that is not biblical. In a moment, we're going to see this right laid out in this passage. Now, before the addictive mindset is what we often don't even realize is there, and that's what I'm going to call what the book calls the addictive root. So you have an addictive root. In a moment, we're going to see what that generally is. You have an addictive mindset that comes from the root, wrong, unbiblical thinking. Then you go into action, and we all know that wrong thinking always begets wrong action. So now you have an addictive behavior, and that brings us to step number four. The addictive cloak. The addictive cloak does two things. It deceives others. In other words, it tries to package yourself as better than you are. Have you ever noticed that people are addictive on destructive behavior, never really go out and admit it to people who they need to admit it to? They have have a spin on it. They try to hide it. 
But the greatest thing, in fact, I, I like what the author called them. He called them denial structures. Because it is not just denying it to others, it is denying it to yourself. I've been working with a man, and I'm going to just tell you to use the old word, I'd call him a drunk in my home area. My daughter led his wife to the Lord, miraculous salvation. She's growing amazingly, but her husband is an alcoholic, is the nice word we use now, but he's a drunk. And one of the greatest problems I am finding with him, he won't admit it. Oh, he'll drink a few too. He said, oh, I drink a little bit too much. But he hasn't, he's, den he's got denial structures that he's a drunk. Let me just say, if you don't talk to him by 10 o'clock, he's drunk the rest of the day. That's a drunk. He does it every day. And he's living in denial structures. So we're trying to help him understand, you've got a problem. Deni that's that's our, our, our really our, our place now we have to go. We've been kind of walking gingerly, but I know that's our next step. So let me just go over it again. You have an addictive root. You have an addictive mindset. You have addictive behavior, and you have an addictive cloak. Now, in a moment, we're going to talk about how do you get that addictive behavior to come down and so it no longer is that which is destructive in your life. Well, let's go to the passage of Scripture. I want you to see this, and uh, we'll see very clearly what the Bible has to say. Look at verse number 3. For though we war walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That means they're not fleshly, but mighty through God. Till the pulling down, here it is, of strongholds. That's what we're talking about. Strongholds, you're going to see in a moment, strongholds are addictive mindset and addictive behavior. Now, the Bible in verse number 5 gives us two aspects of the stronghold. Notice what it says. Casting down, here it is. Number one, imaginations. And every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. Those are the two aspects of a stronghold. Now, let's say the first one is what I'm going to call faulty reasoning. That's what imaginations is. The word imaginations comes from the Greek word logikos. Logikos. Does that sound like some English word we use? <laughs> The word logical or logic, we get it from that word. I like what one commentator called this logikos. He called it illogical logic. Illogical logic. Do you know a lot of people think they're being logical, but it's what, and this is imaginations, it's faulty reasoning. It's unbiblical thinking. It's wrong thinking. That's the idea. It's the addictive mindset. In a moment, we'll explain what that is. God is simply saying that's part of a stronghold, and it's got to come down. But notice the next thing. He says it's high things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. Now, what in the world is that? Well, you have to first understand what's the knowledge of God. Because whatever the knowledge of God is, the high thing is that which exalts itself. In other words, it's say, I am more important than the knowledge of God. Now, what is the knowledge of God? Now, may I tell you that the word there is the word gnosis. The Greek uh, verb is gnosko. And in the, the treasury of New Testament synonyms, defines gnosko this way. Knowing by experience. So it is not knowledge. It's not hard, cold facts knowledge. It's not, let me say this. It's not knowing about God. It's knowing him experientially. Now, all of us understand, in order to get to know somebody, it takes experience. You could be getting data about a person. You could know every fact about their life, but you do not know them. You don't know them until what? You spend time with them. And you begin to glean from your interaction with them and from your experience, you begin to glean what this is knowledge. 
My nephew leads uh, our orchestra and choir at Baptist College of Ministry. And he has become very good friends with the former governor of the state of Wisconsin, Scott Walker. Literally, he could, tw- he could text him and he'd get a text back. I mean, that's the kind of relationship they have. Uh, as a result, the governor, when he was the governor of the state of Wisconsin for those eight years, invited our choir and orchestra and different groups to come to the governor's mansion twice a year, probably. They would come and do different performances and things of that nature. So uh, he knew him pretty well. Now, I met the governor a couple times. And, uh, in fact, the governor was quite an unusual man because he would pray with our students. And uh, many of our students have a lot of memories with the governor praying and praying people we get saved. It was quite a, a remarkable thing for a, a government official up north. Okay, that happens down south, but we're talking up north. And uh, so I met him a couple times. I really don't know Scott Walker. Now, my nephew knows him a whole lot better, but I guarantee you this. Scott Walker's wife knows him better than my nephew. You see, there's different, there's different degrees of knowing somebody. For any of you that have married for a long while, I'll guarantee you this. All you that have been married 55 years know your spouse better than John Pound knows his. Why? Because you have more experience. See, many of you know when your spouse walks through the door. Many of you men know when your spouse walks through the door, mama ain't happy. We're in trouble. You can just tell by the way she looks, by the look on her face. You know her. And many of you ladies, you know your man too. You can just tell. See, it's knowledge by experience. Now, here's the point I want us to say. God is telling us that there are things that we exalt above knowing God experientially. Now, I want to ask you a question, friends. Do you know God? I'm not asking if you're saved. I'm asking you, do you know Him? Do you know Him by experience? My grandmother, I mentioned, I believe her last night, she knew God. I'm telling you, every time she prayed, and I mean every time I was around her, that's what she did. She loved to pray. Every time she prayed, she would usher you into the presence of God. Every time. She'd often start weeping. And he was a little boy, I knew. Grandma knows God. She knows God. She knew him. In fact, my grandmother would walk around the house during hurricanes there in Miami. Hurricanes would hit Miami. This is before weather.com when you didn't know they were coming. And uh, uh, she would walk around the house in Miami. And my dad says as a little boy, he would see his, his mother clapping her hands and saying, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Isn't God powerful? Look, he's scaring all these lost people. They're all scared to death. Isn't God great? She's that woman's crazy. No, she just happened to know the God real well that made that hurricane. She wasn't worried about it. See, many of us don't really know God that way. We don't know him that intimately. So when a hurricane comes, we don't really know the God who made the hurricane. I'm not saying you're lost. I'm just saying you don't know him. Hey, let's just be honest. Modern culture has distracted us from knowing God. You know, I've known a few saints of God. I remember being with Mrs. John R. Rice. My wife and I just one day found out where she lived, knocked on her door. Her husband had been gone for a few years, said, we can we talk to you? I said, my mother used to work for the sword of the Lord for your husband years ago. I don't think she, she connected all the dots, but we went and sat down. And I will tell you, when I sat down with that woman, I will tell you, I knew I was with God. The presence of God was all over that place. That woman knew God. And she carried his presence with her. I want to ask you, friend, do you know God? And he walks with me. And he talks with me. And he tells me I'm his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there. 
None other has ever known. What is the songwriter talking about? God is a spirit. And they that worship him, hang on, must worship him. Do you know? You connect with God, not through the sensory. You connect through with God in the spiritual realm. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I feel real sorry for you. Because the presence of God, fellowship with God, is a spiritual reality. And one of our students at Baptist College Ministry a few years ago, she showed up as a freshman. I was worried about her. She never smiled. Kind of knew a little bit about her home. All her brothers and sisters were pretty similar. Thank the Lord some of them broke out of it, but some of them didn't. And uh, I, uh, I don't know, it was probably two years she was there, and I came back at the end of her, I think it was sophomore year, I could be wrong on the timing. And we were having our final chapel service in, of the year in May, and we were singing a song about prayer. This girl was looking toward the ceiling like the ceiling didn't exist, like she was gazing into heaven, and her face was beaming, tears streaming out of her face. I'm thinking, what happened to her? So later in the day, I stopped her, and I called her name. I said, what happened to you? I even joked with her and said, did they kidnap you? Are you an imposter? What's going on? And uh, she smiled. She said, uh, Dr. Jim, that's what they call me there. She said, Dr. Jim, she said, I was miserable. But she said, I saw all these other students spending an hour with God every day. And boy, they just, they had something I didn't have. I wanted it. She said, I'm going to spend an hour with God if it kills me. She said, the first few days were rough. She said, I eked out an hour with God. And then she said this, I don't know, maybe it was day four, five, six, somewhere in there. She said, I'm having my hour with God. And I don't know how to explain that. There was an awe on her face. And she said, all of a sudden, I knew that he was there. You know what she was learning? She was learning to know God by experience. If you seek him, you will find him. God does not play hide and go seek. He'll find if you want him. And if you search, 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 uh, seek me, you'll find me if you search for me with all your heart. Jeremiah 29, verse 13. Hey, listen, teenager, you can know God. I don't care who you are in this room, how bad you are. You can know God. In fact, it's the ultimate of the Christian experience is to know God and to have fellowship with him. I sat down at lunch at Baptist College Ministry. Two little girls sat down, a sophomore and a freshman. Oh, they said, Dr. Jim, we got to talk to you. I said, what? we got to tell you what happened last night. I said, what happened? I said, we got together for room devotion at 10.30. They go 10.30 to 11. All three of us had siblings that were away from God, and we were all burdened, and we got on our faces before God, and we started a prayer meeting, and she said, Dr. Jim, we don't know what happened, but we prayed for three hours. And it just seemed like a few minutes. And the one little girl said, Dr. Jim, we were in the middle of the prayer meeting, and I don't know how to explain it. She said, we knew he was here. One little girl looked at me and says, I was convinced, Dr. Jim, if I'd opened my eyes, I would have seen him. She wouldn't have seen him because what she was experiencing was not sensory. It was spiritual. It's a spiritual reality. I am telling you, in our modern culture, do you know what? We've lost that. Most of us spend a whole lot more time in Facebook than we do in seeking his face. See? And the point I'm simply making is what the Bible is talking about, a high thing that exalts the knowledge of God, it is something you turn to to find some kind of satisfaction or fulfillment of life other than knowing God. And it is a front to God if you're saved. It's a high thing that exalts itself. It says, I am more important than knowing God. So what is it that you turn to to bring meaning and fulfillment? What do you do when you're bored? 
What do you do when you have extra time? Do you seek God? Is that the ultimate in your human experience? Or is it something else? I'm simply saying, there are young people hearing me right now, and I have no idea who you are. Last night at 2 a.m., you were up looking at garbage on the Internet. I tell this to teachers all the time. If your kids are falling asleep in class, I can guarantee you they're either at 2 a.m. looking at social media that's no good, or they're looking at pornography, or they are on video games. They're all coping mechanisms that exalt themselves against knowing God. See, we live in a culture real good at that. There are deep people in this room that spend more time watching Hollywood movies than you do spending time with God and His Word. Coping mechanism. It actually is destructive behavior because Hollywood is forming your mindset, not the Word of God. Because the truth is, We all know that many times you may be careful for a while, but after a while, if you start watching so many, you lose being careful and you start watching stuff that is completely anti-biblical and affects your thinking. All I'm just simply saying, American Christianity is inundated with high things that have become more important to us than knowing God. I want to ask you, friends, do you know God? Do you know God? And we're all obviously on a journey, and we're all at different points, but are you on the journey, I guess is what I'm saying, to knowing God? So this is the destructive behavior. So uh, you say, okay, preacher, what are we going to do? We see, okay, we've got to cast these things down. We're going to deal with that just in a moment. But how do you cast them down? Okay, well, there's a couple of angles we need to go with. And the first one over here is you've got to approach the destructive behavior, first of all, by understanding what's the root. Then we've got to go to the other side, understand, okay, we've got a cloak, and we've got to deal with the cloak. Now, I personally believe that what I'm preaching to you tonight When you really begin to do it, you experience personal revival. It's all about revival. It's all about getting rid of things that grieve the Holy Spirit so he becomes the the one who begins to move in your life and through your life. You're no longer grieving him. Revival is simply an ungrieved Holy Spirit. It's not rocket science. And I believe with all my heart, there are countries all across this world that are experiencing revival every day. Because they wake up in the morning and realize, I may be in heaven by the end of the night. So when you've got a death sentence, you just live with abandon for Jesus Christ. There are Muslims getting saved all over this world. Generally not in the United States. But other places where people are living in revival. So let's come to, what's our problem then? What's our problem? Okay, hang on, it's rough. It's really rough. When I was looking at that video series on pornography... And then read the book. He said something in the book that, of course, was emphasized in the video series. And here's what he said. He said, I've counseled thousands of men with sexual addictions. He said, almost every single one of them, hang on, has father wounds in their soul. The reason there are young people in the balcony and adults on the main floor that have addictive behavior is because your addictive root is unhealed wounds. You say, Preacher, how do I know I have an unhealed wound? It's very simple. When you think about it, it still hurts. I remember in the video series, he said, write down the 10 most hurtful things that have ever had that has happened to you. And I remember thinking to myself, I haven't had anything hurtful happen. And certainly with my parents, I thank the Lord. I don't have hurtful memories with my parents. But I began to think of other things. 
And the amazing thing was when I thought of them, they hurt. Just like they had happened yesterday, and some of them were 40, 50 years ago. I thought, wow, that is really strange. Because you know what we have a tendency to do with pain and with wounds? We have a tendency to stuff them away and not deal with them. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Do you know what pornography and other coping mechanisms are? Medicating the pain. We try to medicate the pain, but the truth is it only makes it worse. And increases the shame, and we'll deal with that in just a moment, the issue of shame, which often is what comes and brings people to pursue destructive behavior, pornography being one of them. But let's go back to the addictive root. Are there some who deal with mother wounds? Absolutely. Uh, in 35 years of working with teenagers, certainly we have dealt with teenagers who what I would consider would have mother wounds. But let's just be honest. They were far more rare than father wounds. I'm going to be honest with you. As I begin to preach this, I've been amazed at the people who will come to me and say, that's it. I see it now. I've always wondered why I struggle with pornography. I've got father wounds. Now, you get father wounds from two places. And I'm going to tell you right now, I understand about what I'm about to tell you is extremely difficult for some of you that have the wounds. It's hard. But let me just say this. You've got to get the, i got really good news for you. Jesus will heal your wounds. Because Jesus came, don't miss this, to heal the brokenhearted. <laughs> Jesus wants to heal broken people. So the two aspects I find of father wounds are twofold. Number one, the absent father. The absent father is the father who could be literally absent. It's the father who walks out before the kid's born. It's the father who is not married, conceives, and then leaves. It's the, it's the father who perhaps uh, divorces and just does not engage the kids in any way. The absent father leaves father wounds. And let me just simply say that the absent father leaves in the hearts of young people a deep sense of worthlessness. That's the addictive mindset. That I'm worthless. My dad didn't, I wasn't worth enough to spend time with me, the absent father. Now, the absent father, hang on, could also be the father who is present, but he does not engage his son or daughter in a father-son relationship or a father-daughter relationship. For all practical purposes, he's there, but he's off duty. I was preaching out west, and a pastor got up after I preached on bitterness and preached on some of these things, not a lot of them, but some of them. The pastor got up and said, he was weeping. He said, I, I, he said folks, I realized something this morning I've never realized. All my life, I said, I've had a low-grade bitterness toward my dad. He said, my dad was a good man. He'd work hard. He'd come home. He'd provide bills, provide everything I needed. But when he came home, and boy, isn't this the 60s and 70s dad. He said, when he came home, he turned on the television, grabbed the newspaper. You didn't bother him for the next three or four or five hours. He said, he never took me fishing. We really had no father-son relationship. He said, I realize for years I've been bitter at my dad. Now hear me, that is an absent father. And it leaves wounds. A deep sense of worthlessness. And some of you are vibing with me right now. That brings me to point number two, the angry father. Now the absent father is better than the angry father because the angry father says things that unfortunately are remembered. Wounding words. I was preaching not too far from here. And I want to be careful, but 
young man came up to me. And he said, Brother Van Gelderen, he said, you describe me to a T. He said, my dad's angry. He said, my dad's a pastor. He's angry. I got a grandfather. He's angry. And he says, I am too. See, the angry father. And many times things are said that the child remembers that are hurtful. You can't do anything right. You'll be nothing but fill in the blank, a ditch digger or whatever else. Devastating things that are said and remembered. Now, here's the thing. The addictive root is the wounding from the words. The addictive mindset is the sense of worthlessness. I asked that gentleman who had an angry father. I said, do you feel worthless? Because I'm just kind of learning. He said, yeah, all my life. He said, I've had a sense I'm worthless. Now, I'm going to just be honest with you. I can't relate with that. I've gotten discouraged, and I've sometimes felt like a failure because in something in my life, but I have never had a deep sense of worthlessness, and I'm going to tell you why. Because my father told me otherwise. In a moment, I want to tell you about that. Because some of you can turn it around. You still have time to turn it around. In fact, if you still have a son, you have time, or a daughter, you have time to turn it around. But you have to understand what, and I tell young people, and I know this is going to sound blunt, but I got to just tell you this. I tell young people, if your dad has ever told you something like that, don't believe it because it's not biblical. You can't do anything right is completely opposite of I can do all things through Christ. So who are you going to believe, teenagers? An angry father who Satan is yanking their chain or your heavenly father who says you can do anything I call you to do through my strength. See, you have to reject that which is not true because that which is not true begets thinking that is not true. There are deep people in this room right now you do not feel loved. You have a very hard time accepting love or feeling loved. It's a mindset that comes from unresolved wounds and pain. And you know, let's just face it. When, when there's hurt in a life, when somebody says something or does something that's hurtful, the immediate thing we want to do is hurting people want to hurt people. Let, let's just be honest, men. We, we men can kind of relate with this a little bit more. How many men out here would admit that at least once in your life you banged your head on the cabinets? Can I see your heads, hands, please? Okay, you're going to admit it. So many of you didn't admit it. Okay, truth is we all have. What do you want to do when you bang your head on the cabinet? Can I just be honest with you? I want to rip the cabinets off the wall and stomp on them. Like that's going to do any good. See, that's the automatic response. Many times I will tell young people, you've got an angry father, I'll ask them this question. Well, what was your grandfather like? What was your dad's dad like? And you tell me, what's their answer almost 100% of the time? Oh, yeah, he had an anger problem too. Generational. Isn't that tragic? I got really good news for you. The grace of God is bigger than that. The grace of God can stop the mess. I put it this way. You know what bitter teenagers become? Angry parents. Do you know what angry parents produce? Bitter teenagers. Do you know what bitter teenagers become? Angry parents. Do you know what angry parents produce? Bitter teenagers. The cycle continues. But the grace of God can stop the whole deal. And let me just say, young people out on the balcony, if you have bitterness in your heart toward a mom or a dad, one day, if you don't deal with it, your kids will feel the same way about you. They'll feel the same. And I tell young people this all the time. If you are bitter and you say, I'll never be like my dad, if you don't deal with your bitterness, you will be just like him. 
because bitterness turns you into it because you have an addictive root, pain. As a result of the pain, you have wrong thinking, and then you have to medicate the pain. It's like an illustration I read, and I was stunned by this illustration, but the young man won the MVP in his league of basketball, and he brought the trophy back down real proud, came to his dad, said, Dad, I won the MVP, and his dad said something, oh, son, you didn't deserve it. Somebody deserved it more like you, more than you did, which is an unthinkable thing, but he said it. The boy, as a result of what that was said, and I'm sure there are other things, got a deep sense of worthlessness in his life, so he medicated the pain with pornography, and guess what? Every time he looked at the pornography, guess what? He felt more worthless. And it only affirmed his sense of worthlessness. See, all I'm simply saying is, we have looked, we have tried to fight pornography on the issue, the level of lust. And what I'm trying to tell you, that the way to overcome pornography is not to fight it on the lust level alone. Oh, no. It's to go down to the root, which is unresolved pain and wounds. I'm talking to dear people in this room. Right now, if you were to think of the ten most hurtful things, and I've had people literally, when I preach on this, cry the entire time. Because they have unhealed wounds. Now back to what I was talking about. I was talking about these unhealed wounds. And I was thinking, have I ever been wounded? And then I thought of something that happened. And it sounds funny. It's, it's one of those things. It seems sometimes hard to say it. But in, when I was six years old, there were two autistic twins that lived across the street. And one day they were out by a little swing that would, a little, I don't know, not a swing, but it would go round and round or a merry-go-round type thing. And, and it kind of like horses on it or something or seats or whatever. And it hit them and left some deep bruises on them. Of course, they were slow physically, so they couldn't get out of the way. And they got deep bruises there. Their mother was evidently bathing them one night and said, who did that to you? And I don't know why, but they said, my name. <laughs> I'll never forget the horror of being falsely accused. I remember my mom and dad dressed up in their Sunday best, dressed me up in the Sunday best. We went across the street and I had to face the accusers, of course, I denied it. I do know what it's like to be falsely accused. I thought I was going to jail. Six years old. I thought it was done. Life is over. I'm going to jail. Life in prison. It, well, let me just say this. To be falsely accused at six years old was extremely hurtful. And as soon as I thought about that, it hurt. 50 years ago, and it hurt like it happened yesterday. I thought that's unbelievable. I have never dealt with that hurt. So I took some of the steps that were given in the thing, and I began to find that there began to become healing to that hurt. And one of the things is when you're six years old, you don't have a lot of theology to counsel yourself. So the guy says, go back and counsel yourself. Take your, put your arm around that six-year-old kid and tell that six-year-old kid what you would tell him if it happened now. You say, well, what did you tell yourself? I thought, you know, Jim, don't worry about it. Because Jesus is going to teach you that he, uh, he can meet all your needs. He can comfort you. And more than that, you're going to learn that don't ever break the law. It wouldn't be worth it. <laughs> and I think about the rest of my life. I have always never been tempted to break the law. And I go back to that when I was six years old. Because I learned the horror of really, even though it was unrealistic, facing what I thought was broken law. I'm going to go to jail. So I said, oh, there's good that came out of it. And I, as soon as I began to think about the good, guess what? I began to heal. <laughs> See, the point is, I can tell you, I remember when I was 14. I was at a soccer game. I was uh, out on the field playing for our coach. And 
I, I missed up a play. It was a close game, and I messed a big play up, and he pulled me out, and, and literally, I mean, he was angry. And I remember, as soon as I thought about it, I hadn't thought about that in like 35, 40 years. And as soon as I thought about it, it hurt. <laughs> like it had happened yesterday. And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I had to go back and try to work through some of these things. They're not major wounds, but they were wounds. You all know that there's still a wound if you think about it. And it hurts. And all I'm simply saying, friends, have you ever wondered about the fact, why do I do such things? Why do I have an anger problem? I was counseling a kid just a few days ago. And um, he said to me, he said, "I I am angry all the time. I went back and we began to realize he had a lot of father wounds, a lot of them. Dad had a major anger problem. His coping mechanism, I said, you looking at video games? No. You look at pornography? No. You're doing stuff? You you know, no. And he really realized he wasn't. So his coping mechanism for anger was, this sounds funny, anger. He'd just lash out at people, brothers and sisters, younger friends. He'd lash out at them, just angry. See, that was his coping mechanism over here, his addictive behavior, but it came from a root that was not yet healed. Now, when you're coming to a stronghold, let's just think about this. In military terminology, when you have a, a stronghold that's built in friendly soil, guess what has to happen? Before that stronghold can ever be built, you have to get real estate. In the United States of America, what would you feel if somebody out in the forest, it was made known that a foreign like China was building a military installation out in the forest? Would you be concerned about that? You say, man, what's going on? Where did they get the real estate? What, you know, we'd all be, but it all would start with they have to get some real estate. Now, obviously, when it comes to a stronghold, we have to recognize that we're dealing with the very innate ideas, we're dealing with an enemy, (laughs) So Satan is trying to build an art, and again, it's all talking about mind. It's talking about the hearts, and obviously Satan can't possess believers. We get that. But the point is he can affect our thinking when we buy into what he's doing. It all is about the mind. But before he can ever affect our thinking, you must give him real estate. You say, well, how do you give Satan real estate? Okay, it's in the book of Ephesians. Neither give place to the devil. You ever heard that verse? The word place is the word tapas. What English word do we get from the word tapas? It's the word topography. Neither give real estate to the devil is the idea. Now, if you look at the passage, here's how you give real estate to the devil. Number one, let not the sun go down upon their wrath. Now, you please hear me. If you have had bitterness or anger in your heart or resentment in your heart over 24 hours, you have given real estate to the devil. If you say, my mother, I can't believe what my mother did. My dad, he ruined my life. If that has been in your heart over 24 hours, you have given Satan real estate. And he is more than happy to take that real estate. And what he does, that's the root you give him. Now he begins to build on it. Wrong thinking. So he hands, you hand them bricks like, I'm worthless. I'm no good. God doesn't love me. Whatever. And every time you hand Satan wrong thinking, he's glad to take it, and he begins to build a stronghold. The amazing thing about strongholds is we have to give the enemy the real estate and the building materials. Like, that makes any sense. But that's the idea. But there's another passage there. I mean, there's several verses there that talk about it. And the other one is, talks about lying. 
Anytime we buy into something that is not true, we give the Satan an opportunity to affect our thinking. I'm using the analogy of real estate. We give him mental real estate. And then he begins to shove other lives at us. And as we believe those, we hand them building materials. That's why dear people in this room who have lived with deep sense of worthlessness or sense God doesn't love me or other people don't love me or wrong thinking patterns in your life have literally allowed Satan to build up this wrong thinking. And then what happens is you run to something other than God, your high thing, your coping mechanism. And again, that's why people get into alcohol, get into... Drug abuse, I have a dear friend of mine who got saved at 28. He said, I gave 10 years of my life to crystal meth. When he got saved, he was on six Oxycontins a day, that is prescription heroin. He was 28 years old. He was a functioning addict, but life was slipping away. He knew he was in trouble. He was about to lose it. He said, it took several showers a day because the Oxycontin would make his skin crawl. He said he was taking a shower one day, and in the steam on the thing, he wrote, Somebody help me. He got out of the shower, and the phone was ringing. It was his sister, and said, called his name. He said, Matt, what's wrong? What's wrong, Matt? He said, oh, no. he just lied to her. Nothing's wrong. She had no idea he was an addict. She was a believer. She had witnessed to him several times. She said, Matt, you need Jesus. You've got to trust Jesus. And, of course, he, he denounced her and, and was angry with her. And... and um, of course, basically told her to get off the phone, whatever. He slammed the phone down, and you know what he did right after that? He dropped to his knees and asked Jesus Christ to wash his sins away and save him. Amen. You know, the amazing thing is the second prayer, and God doesn't always do it this way. His second prayer was, God, if you take away my addictions, I will give you my life. He said at that moment, his addictions was gone. No cold turkey, no withdrawal. He's never taken drugs since then. And he's now a church planner in the state of Wisconsin. And it's remarkable. Got a tattoo from this all the way down as a testimony of the grace of God. But here's what he told me. He said, when I was 12 years old, he said, the pain of my dad walking out was so great. He said, I hurt. He said, I went to marijuana, I went to alcohol, trying to medicate the pain. Now I want to ask you a question. Do we live in a broken society or what? The point I'm making, friends, is even in this room, we have people who relate this. In fact, the truth is, I believe the dysfunction has now all throughout the church. There's a lot of hurting people. So you say, preacher, what are we going to do? Well, God says you've got to cast down the imaginations. You know what that means? You must confront wrong thinking with Bible thinking. And every time that sense, I'm worthless. You know what you need to think of? No, I'm accepted in the beloved. I'm in Jesus, dead to sin in Jesus, alive unto God in Jesus. God has a will for my life. And we need to start confronting the lies with truth. And every time you do what you're doing, you're taking a brick back and saying, no, I'm not, I'm not going that way anymore. And then the high thing has got to come down. You know what that means? I mean, saying, God, more than anything else, I want to know you. If some of you just turn off the television and just stop watching Hollywood movies and start seeking God with the time you used to waste on media trying to medicate pain, you might find that Jesus is a way better coping mechanism than Hollywood. And I'm not trying to be irreverent. We live in a country today where we are literally insulting God every day with our coping mechanism. So you certainly, you say, well, preacher, what are you going to do? Okay, well, those high things have got to go down. And you've got to simply say, I'm not using those anymore. 
I want to walk with God. I want to know Jesus. Now, on this side, you've got denial structures. So the best way to do that, denial structures, if you're really dealing with this, if you're a teenager, what you need to do, head to your parents, if they're godly people, you trust them, and you need to tell them all the junk you've been watching on the Internet. Just, just be honest with you. You've got to drop the denial structures. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh shall have mercy. You've got to drop those denial structures. Somebody has said this, church is where people ought to be able to hurt out loud. But most people come to church trying to look like there's something they're not. I'm telling you, the church has got to get uncomfortable because, as I mentioned on Sunday morning, the statistic that was very scientifically done said 70% of all men in evangelical churches are have sexual addictions. 70%. So the church is going to have to get uncomfortable and start dealing with it. But the uncomfortable part is that we are a church, and it's like this. Okay, you got a problem? We believe Jesus can deliver you, and we'll do everything we can by the grace of God through the power of the Spirit and the power of the Word to see you delivered. It's not that we're in any way dumbing down the sin. It's a bad deal. But we're going to have to realize this is the messy world we now live in. So the high things, the denial structures, you've got to stop lying to yourself. And that's one of the problems with social media. We act like we're something we're not. But when you will always, in fact, there's a revival song, and I'm going to be honest with you, I've been, uh, revival meetings all across the country, I have never heard this revival song sung, and it is the most, I'll be honest with you, the most powerful revival song I've ever heard, yeah, I've never heard it in a revival meeting. You say, what is it? It's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Boy, that's a good revival song. Revival always starts when we realize, I got issues. But Jesus can deliver me. I put it this way. I'm the messer-upper and he's the fixer-upper. I got problems and he's got solutions. And the truth is, friend, everybody in this room's got problems and I'm telling you, he's got solutions. And everybody in this room knows what it is to mess it up every day and to look, you, hopefully you know how to look to Jesus to fix it up. But it, stops, it starts with dealing with denial structures. It's going to a brother in Christ and saying, hey, listen, i got a problem looking at garbage on the Internet. Would you help me? It's going to your pastor and say, Pastor, I know you think I'm better than this, but i got issues. It's like sometimes a teenager will say to me, and when, it, when they're, they come and say, oh, preacher, I can't tell my parents. They think I'm better than that. And you know what my answer always is? You're not. <laughs> so just be honest with them. See, denial structures have got to come down. We have got to stop acting like we're something we're not. And I have found this because at our home church, we've been having small groups dealing with this, the issues of moral purity, and men are getting honest with one another. And do you know what happens? They are stepping into victory. Did you know that if you'll just come clean about your struggles to the right people, you're halfway to victory? Just dropping the denial structures. So you got the addictive cloak, got to deal with this side. Addictive root, we got to get to Jesus and get this bitterness taken care of. See, here's the point. We've been hurt, but we're not victims. You know why? Because we got bitter at the people who hurt us. So I want to ask you a question. Do you have any hatred, bitterness, hang on, low-grade resentment toward anybody? There are dear men in this room who have a low-grade resentment toward your wife. And I'm telling you, friend, that is probably the reason you struggle with addictive behavior in your life. Because of a low-grade resentment right over here. And it throws you into wrong thinking, often blaming your wife for your issues. 
And then over here, medicating the pain with destructive behavior of some nature. Maybe more major, maybe more minor. Overworking is destructive behavior. How many men? I had a man I was counseling just a few weeks ago, and he said to me, Preacher, I don't want to be around my wife, and I don't want to be around my kids, so if I get more hours, I'll get more hours. I'll do everything I can to stay out of the house. Now, that is not noble. That is running from a problem, and that is addictive behavior. See, that's what I'm talking about. It's a coping mechanism. Wrong, wrong answer. So the issue, friends, is you've got to bring down the strongholds have got to come down. They come down by dealing with the root. They come down with dealing with the cloak, and then they come down with, like the Bible says, casting them down. Saying, I don't want them anymore. Then it says, bring every thought into captivity. And I don't have time to fully deal with that, but the word thought is found multiple times in the book of 2 Corinthians. And almost every single time the word is used, it's used with Satan. And we are not ignorant of his devices. That's the word, thought. Bringing every thought into captivity is simply this. To the obedience of Christ. Is this whole thing we've showed you is Satan's scheme. It's his way of destroying lives. And God is saying, take this deal and put it in prison. And the way you do that is through the power of the Holy Spirit, start having victory instead of defeat. And realize, I've been falling to Satan's traps. He's got, a, he's got, his, he's got, he's got me neutralized. Dear people in this room that maybe never in your entire life have really come to understand, why am I so defeated? Why don't I have power with God? Why does so little of my Christian life have power? Why is God not real to me? And I believe many times they come because we have strongholds. Now, I've just dealt with one aspect. There are many other aspects. We can deal with worry, anxiety. We can deal with boredom. There are many other roots that we can deal with that yield things. But the big one seems to be pain in our culture. Now, one other instruction, and we'll be finished, because I know we've gone longer than I intended tonight, but one other thing will be done. You might be out here as a father, and let me just say this. My purpose tonight is not to rub, to, just to rub salt in the wounds, except that salt does help heal, and certainly the Word of God can do that. But my burden tonight is to also move towards solution. And I hope as you look at this, you realize, okay, there can be solution in my life. Dads, let me just address you if I can. Your words and your actions powerful. My dad, as I mentioned, I think last night, did not come from, his father was not a godly man. He wasn't a wicked man. He was just kind of a, a nothing spiritually. Very defeated, very discouraged, very pessimistic. My grandmother was completely the opposite. So he certainly did not have a great example. Father had an anger problem. My dad started life with an anger problem. It's an anger problem I never saw. My older brother, seven years older than I, tells me that when he was younger, he saw dad's anger several times, and it, it was deeply wounded him for a while. He said about seven years old, he came to the dinner table one night, and his hands were all dirty, his face was dirty, and fingernails, he thought he'd cleaned up, but you know how kids are, he hadn't, and my dad was very much on cleverness. He sat down at the table, and my dad erupted. This is hard for me to even imagine, because I never saw it happen. He said, my dad got quiet for a moment, then left the table, was gone a long. My dad came back, there were tears in his eyes. First time I saw my dad cry was in my late 20s when my mother died. First time I ever saw him cry. I will tell you, friend, my dad came back to the table and my brother says, 
He said, son, I was wrong. I was so wrong. I don't ever want to do that again. Would you pray for me, son? By the grace of God, I don't want to ever do it again. And my brother will testify from that day on, he never did. In fact, my dad became very good at something that I, tell, I want to encourage every man in this room to become good at. And you know what that's called? Affirmation. Affirmation. You know what affirmation is? It's telling your kids. It's casting a vision for your kids that you got from God. You know, my dad started doing seeking God, saying, God, could you give me a vision for my kid's life? And you know what my dad started saying to me as I was growing up? He would say it literally, it seems to me all the time. He's saying, Jim, God's hands on your life. God is going to use you, son. God is going to use you in a greater way than he's ever used me. He would say stuff like that to me on a regular basis. And you know what? If you'd have looked at me back in high school, you know what I would say? That ain't going to happen. <laughs> but my dad didn't just say it. He believed it. And because he believed it, guess what? I did too. To me, it's amazing dad said it. <laughs> but you know, my friend, your sons and daughters will believe it too. I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking. I'm talking about getting on your knees and getting a vision from God for your kids and telling them. Affirming them. Now, please understand, acceptance performance killing our kids. You know what acceptance performance is? Many kids feel my parents accept me only when I perform. Acceptance performance simply is dealing with what they do. Affirmation is dealing with who they are. And if all you do is com- congratulate them on performance, their acceptance performance. In other words, if I, do, if I do the right thing, I'm in love. If I don't do the right thing, I am not loved. And if we're not careful, can communicate, not communicate unconditional love. Obviously, unconditional love is key. But unconditional love comes with affirmation. It's affirming who they are. It's even in discipline, you affirm who they are. Son, you're in Jesus, dead to sin, alive unto God. God has a purpose for your life. And although we're going to have to deal with this thing, we're going to get through it. You're going to see victory in your life. Do you understand, friends? It's not frustration. It's not anger. It's not embarrassment. It's casting vision. And I am absolutely convinced that what this culture is crying out for is some young men and young ladies who have parents who affirm them. Because what happens when there's affirmation? There are not these wounds, at least these wounds that come from the home, which are the most deadly kinds of wounds. They will not have a sense of worthlessness, which means they won't be trying to medicate pain with destructive behavior. And all I'm going to simply say, there are dear men out here who understand what it is to be hurt because your dad deeply wounded you. And as a result, if you're not careful, you pass it on to your sons. You say, well, preacher, I've already started that. The very first thing you can do tonight is come down to an altar, which I hope you will do. Humble yourself before Almighty God. Get it right with God and go home and say, Mom, son and daughter, I've got to talk to you. I've been wrong. Just like my dad did. My older brother's now been in the ministry. He's pastored for almost 40 years himself. So I encourage every, and it's good for moms to affirm, don't get me wrong, but I'm especially, this is the issue with dads. Friends, tonight, you say, okay, preacher, I, I find myself right here in this, this thing that you've talked about, so what's the answer, okay? Bottom line, the answer is this. You will never see the destructive behavior fall until Jesus Christ is living in your heart because he is the one that heals the brokenhearted and he is the one that sets the captive free. And if you're not saved, you cannot see the destructive behavior go down. 
You cannot do it unless you have a God that you can know. And did you know, my friend, how, I don't matter how worthless you feel, Jesus Christ wants to fellowship with you. He wants you. And he unconditionally loves you. And if you read the Bible, he will affirm you over and over and over again. Telling you who you are in Jesus Christ. May I say this? Do not let your sinful past define who you are. Let who you are in Jesus Christ define who you are. Because many a young man gets into shame. He feels so much shame because uh, of perhaps the wounds and then the, his, his behavior of getting into garbage. And he feels so much shame and it fuels the problem. And he begins to buy into the lie of the devil. And what he has got to realize is that's not who I am. In Jesus Christ, I'm far different. <laughs> I'm dead to sin, alive unto God, raised up in the heavenlies, and the list could go on. Complete in him, accepted in the beloved. So, friends, you need Jesus. I know I'm not preaching a full gospel message, but I will tell you, friend, you need Jesus Christ. I am not talking, friends, about religion. I am talking about a relationship. <laughs> well, you know him. You pray to him. You know he answers your prayer. You have a relationship with him. You sense the spiritual reality of his presence on a regular basis in your life. I want to ask you, friend, when's the last time you knew he is here? I hope it was today. But I'm, I'm, I believe this with all my heart. We are absolutely so distracted in this culture. We are living without God. And it is killing us. And that's why tonight many people say, yeah, I've got some destructive behavior. Hooked on technology. Spend way too much time on technology. Hey, listen. There's dear people in this room. You spend so much time on technology. And you can't remember the last time you spent an hour with God. I challenge you to get rid of an hour of discretionary technology that you don't really need and start spending with God. I was with a pastor two years ago. He's a young man. I said, why don't you start spending an hour with God? I was back with him two years later, just a few weeks ago. And you know what he said to me, preacher? He said, I took your advice. I started spending an hour with God every day. And he looked at me. He said, it has changed my life. He said, many times I'm on my study. I cannot be anywhere but on the ground because I know I'm in the presence of God. Hey, friend, you read the old timers. That's how we live, but we're so distracted we don't live that way anymore. He heals the brokenhearted. Could I ask every head bowed, please, and every eye?